You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Fenizio, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. It says not that we loved God. That's who we were. Not any of us. Not that we loved God. And so it's not that we in our natural state loved God and then he responded to our love. No, the picture that's being painted for us here in the Bible is not that of a people seeking for God because they loved him. In fact, just the opposite by nature as the result of sin and the fall of man We are enemies of God. Perhaps one of the most common misconceptions that we can have towards God is that God loves us because we love Him. As the Apostle John writes in his letter, it's actually quite the contrary. And it's because God loved us first that we can love Him. In today's message, Pastor Mike will help you to better understand how our ability to love God is hindered by our fallen nature. In his study, you'll gain a better understanding of God's love in that while we were still yet sinners, he pursued us still. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of 1 John chapter 4 as he begins his message, Measuring the Love of God. listen, think about this for a moment. How important is this subject that we're treating this evening? Because every successful marriage relationship is based on love. I mean, think about it. I mean, to have a successful relationship, for example, just think of it as the relationship that we have in the marriage relationship or any relationship, the relationships that we have with our best friends, our uh, our, uh, nearest relatives or Uh, members of our immediate family. Uh, The success of those relationships are based upon love, right? And and because of the sense of love, we are secure in that relationship. And so it is with our relationship with God. So this is a very important subject. And I think it would serve us well to think about the subject of measuring the love of God. Now, before we go ahead and even tackle our text Let me also say that verses 9 and 10 remind me of another text of Scripture, Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. In Ephesus chapter 3 and verses 18 and 19, Paul asks us to join him in measuring the width, the length, the height, and depth of God's love. And then he goes on to declare, which sort of like becomes an oxymoron, which passeth understanding. So he's asking us to do something which actually is an impossibility. It's an impossible task. 
Nevertheless, we are to aspire to the challenge. We're to measure the immeasurable. We are to plumb the depths that no man can ever reach. So, uh, you know, I want you to think about this, too. And, and the truth of the matter is, uh, and, and this evening, at best, we're only going to scratch the surface in measuring the love of God as it relates to some of the things that we're going to be talking about. It's going to take an entire eternity to discover, really, the love of God, the height, the depth, how broad it is, and, and, uh, and all of that. In fact, in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 2, in verse 7, and I didn't give this as a cross-reference, but in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 7, uh, Paul puts it this way. He says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. But notice there in verse 7, in the ages to come, because it's going to take ages to come. It's going to take an absolute entire eternity to discover and then to rediscover the love of God. And you've heard the example that I've given so many times before. You know, just when we thought we've, oh, now I understand the love of God. He's going to reveal to us another side of that love. And as he even does that, we're going to say, oh, now I understand. And even before we can express that in the form of a sentence, then he's going to reveal another dimension of his love. And then we're, in that moment, we're going to say, oh, now I understand. And, and that whole thing is going to go on forever and ever and ever. And that's what we're going to be spending eternity, at least in part, doing, discovering and rediscovering the love of God, right? And so this evening, some of what we're going to be talking about, I admit, is only going to be scratching uh, the, sur the, the surface. Anyway, we're going to still go at it best as we can. Now, John here helps us with this undertaking. His proposition in this, notice, God's love has been manifested in what he has done for us in Christ. Verses 9 and 10, which serves as our text. And there are two ways to consider these verses, verses 9 and 10. Okay, so let us start in the depths of this announcement. And that brings us to our first point, and that is the object of God's love. Now, what are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about you. We're talking about me. Isn't it true that we are the object of God's love? And so let us look at the love of God and attempt to measure it by looking at ourselves. You see, you will never know the love of God until we know the startling truth about ourselves, right? Think about that. Now, back to our text. We are told here that God loves us. Go back to our text in verses 9 and 10. We're flat out told that God loves us. Now, why does God love us? Well, someone would be thinking, well, because we're such wonderful people. Or we're so lovable. Or we're so deserving of God's love. Listen, I don't think so. <laughs> Notice here, we are told in our text, there in verse 9, that God sent his son that we might live through him. Now, what does that suggest to us? Well, I conclude that apart from him, we're dead, right? If he came to give us life, 
that would suggest then that we are dead. That is dead, the result of our sin. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, I gave this as a cross-reference, didn't I, Patty? It says there, and you he has made alive, he has quickened us, who were dead in our trespasses and sin. That's our B.C. days, before Christ. That's the state that each and every one of us was in before our conversion experience, before our being born again of the Spirit of God, before inviting Christ to come and be the Lord and Savior of our lives. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But he has quickened us now. He has made us alive. So all of us, apart from Jesus, are in a state of spiritual death. Our spiritual faculties lie dormant. Let me give you another cross-reference for this. In 1 Corinthians in chapter 2 and verse 14, you're familiar with this one. I'm often quoting it. But the natural man, that would be the person who isn't born again, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So we lack a knowledge of God, and there is an absence of understanding spiritual things in that state, right? Before Christ gives us this life that John is referring to here in this text. In that state, if the truth of the matter is, we're really not living at all. We're merely existing. You know, go back to Ephesians chapter 2, and uh, we read verse 1, but would you turn there with me? In your Bibles, in Ephesians chapter 2, let's read verses 1 through 3. He says, And you he has made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. We've already talked about that. In which you once walked, according to the course of this world, the flow of this world, the philosophy of this world, the mores of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Notice who it is that's directing the course, uh, who's beating the drum that everyone is marching to. It's the devil. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And folks, let me tell you something. This is more evident than ever before. And then in verse 3, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. We were driven by the desires and the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind. You know, that's, we live for those things, to just simply gratify our lust, the desires of our flesh. And we're by nature children of wrath, just as others. That is, just as everyone else. So what are we told here then? Well, we were dead to God. We were living according to the course of this world. An existence in a state of death. This is the truth of the matter. This is who we were. And this is the reason why God sent his son into this world, so that we might live, so that we might experience this new life. Jesus came to give us true life in him. And so to measure God's love, you have to realize who we were before God did that work in each and every one of us through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, not only are we dead, but according to the Bible, we by nature hate God. Now, if you walk up to an average Joe on the street and ask him the question, well, do you hate God? 
And of course, they would reply, no, I don't hate. What makes you think that I, that I hate God? But listen, the truth of the matter is that same person that you've asked that question to really hates what God is all about. They hate the commandments of God. You know, if they didn't, they would obey it. They would be walking in his ways, in his statutes, keeping his commandments. Notice in verse 10, let's go back to our text there in 1 John. What does it say there in verse 10? It says, not that we loved God. That's who we were. Not any of us. Not that we loved God. And so it's not that we in our natural state love God and then he responded to our love. No, the picture that's being painted for us here in the Bible is not that of a people seeking for God because they loved him. In fact, just the opposite, by nature, as the result of sin and the fall of man, we are enemies of God. Romans chapter 8 and verse 7 tells us that the carnal mind, the natural man, is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So verse 10 tells us he loved us. It's not the other way around. It's not that we were seeking God, right? It's rather that he loved us. I can't help but think of another text of Scripture in the book of Romans in chapter 5, in verses 8 and 10. But God demonstrated his son, uh, his love, his own love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, which suggests that, you know, there wasn't anything that we did on our part that warranted God sending his son into the world. We weren't looking for that, right? He just, on the basis of who he is, uh, the choice that he made, his loving us, he sent his only begotten son into this world. In verse 10, in that same chapter, for if when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And so there you have it. I mean, it basically tells us that we were enemies of God. And in that state, God nevertheless sent his son into the world. So here you have men and women down in the depths of sin, describing nothing but wrath and judgment, rather deserving (laughs) nothing, uh, rather than wrath and judgment. And that's the truth. And we don't know anything about God's love or how to measure it until we begin here. That is, considering ourselves and who it was that God sent his son into the world for to bring us life. So it has to begin there. And that's just one of the ways that we measure the love of God. Now, the second step in measuring the love of God, we're now about to go from the depths, that is man, to the heights, that is God. We need to look at him, and we need to consider what God has done for us. And again, we go back to verse 9 here in our text, in 1 John in chapter 4, where we are told, he sent his only begotten son into the world. Now, if you think about it, that's the gospel message in a nutshell. That's the central message of the gospel, that God sent his only begotten son into the world, John 3, 16, right? It's all about a person called Jesus, 
of Nazareth. Okay, who is he? Well, he's God's son. That's what we're told here in our text. His only son, his only begotten son. So what does that statement suggest to us? Well, that statement means that this person has a unique kinship and relationship with God the Father. It's John's way of saying that Jesus is none other than the eternal Son of God, co-eternal, equal with God, dwelling in the bosom of God, one with God, the second person of the Godhead, the second person of the Trinity. Now, also, Jesus is someone who has been, as we are told here in our text, sent into this world. Now, this can only be said of the person of Jesus Christ. The statement is totally and completely unique concerning him. Because think about it. None of us have been sent into this world. Rather, we were born into this world. But Jesus was sent. So what does that suggest? Well, if he was sent, he had to be sent from somewhere, somewhere else. So the idea here is that Jesus existed before eternity. You see, Bethlehem was not the beginning for him. He was rather sent from heaven. And this is another way of measuring God's love for us. You say, how's that? Well, I want you to think about Jesus, first of all, in heaven. Think about where he was sent from. Think about the glory of heaven. And there in glory, right, where worship abounded in absolute perfection and eternal bliss, Jesus worshiped there as God by all of the angelic hosts there in heaven. Jesus was sent into a world consisting of men and women such as I have already described, which wasn't a good picture that I painted, neither, right? And, uh, you know, what in the world would make God the Father send his only begotten son into that world? To die for that class of people that I've just described for you? Can you really wrap your head around that? So Jesus was sent into a world consisting of men and women, such as I've already described. Jesus who there in heaven, the one who is in the bosom of the Father, and if you're a parent, I want you to think about what this means. Certainly would mean something to you, because think about your own love for your children, and then multiply that by infinity. That is God the Father's love for God the Son. And yet in spite of that, he sent him into this world. You know, man, I'll tell you something. If, if I was in God the Father's place, I would never have ever sent any of my children into this world to die for that group of people, <laughs> for us. And we were part of that group of people. No way. The way that I love my kids, undeserving, there would be absolutely no way uh, whatsoever. I mean, what made him do something like that? These are the things that we need to think about. These are the things that will help us to measure the love of God. That is God the Father's love for God the Son. And yet he sent him into this world. Jesus incarnate, the God-man, 
who possessed all the fullness of the Godhead, dwelling in him bodily. Now, what sort of a world did he come into? Well, what are we told about his birth? I mean, go back to the gospel accounts of the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, Initially, we are told that there was no room for him. Remember, there was no room for Joseph and Mary uh, to give birth. There was no room in the inn, right? We are told that. And so right from the very beginning, we conclude there was no room for Jesus. The callousness. Think about that world that he was born into. The callousness. The selfishness of mankind was such that even a woman in that condition did not get a room and had to deliver in a stable. And they took the Lord of glory and they laid him in a manger. Listen, that world that Jesus was born into was a selfish, self-centered, everyone out for themselves kind of a world. But folks, are you surprised? Because things really haven't changed all that much. You remember Herod, uh, within a short period of time after Christ's birth, and his attempt to massacre all of the innocents. Remember the edict uh, pronounced by Herod the king, because he uh, became aware of the fact that another king had just been born. And so the edict went forward that they were to kill all of the male children who were under the age of two years throughout all of Bethlehem and its coasts. This was the world, this was the sort of world that Jesus was born into. So all of the malice, all of the envy, all of the hatred, all of the bloodshed, and then consider the poverty into which Jesus was born. His parents couldn't even afford to give the price of the highest offering for him, according to the Levitical law. Now, if a, if a, if a couple uh, gave birth, they were to bring an offering and uh, uh, give it to the uh, priest. It was to consist of a lamb and a turtle dove. But if they didn't have any money whatsoever, then because the lamb was obviously, uh, and it was supposed to be a choice lamb, But if they didn't have enough money to purchase the lamb, to bring as an offering, as a result of the birth of of a child, then in its place they could offer two turtle doves. It's recorded for us in the book of Leviticus in chapter 12. When Joseph and Mary brought their son Jesus during the period of purification and then for him to be dedicated within the temple, They didn't even have enough money to to purchase that lamb to bring as a sacrifice. In my father's house, there's a place for me. In my father's house, where I long to be. That's all we have time for on this edition of In My Father's House. We invite you to connect with Pastor Mike and listen to more teachings from God's Word by visiting HarvestNYC.org. At our website, you'll learn all about his ministry and the church it stems from, Harvest Christian Fellowship. We'd love you to join us for worship this Sunday at 11 a.m. You can reserve your seat online by clicking on Contact. 
We're located in Midtown Manhattan, and there's easy access from Port Authority on 42nd and Penn Station on 34th. If you're not in the area, though, or if you're just unable to attend in person right now, we'd still like to have you be a part of our time of studying God's Word. We're live-streaming our services each week, and you can connect on our website. Again, that's harvestnyc.org. If you'd like to catch up with previous messages, check out the link under Resources for One Place. Just click on the earphones to listen in. You can also watch other services through our Vimeo link or connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Links to all of these are available at our website. As we wrap up our time with you today, we'd like to remind you just how much your Heavenly Father loves you. We also want you to know how grateful we are to have you as a part of our listening audience. How can we be praying for you right now? Feel free to fill out the contact form at harvestnyc.org. We're honored to lift you up to the Lord in prayer. Thanks for joining us today on In My Father's House.